I'm going to read Psalm number six. And so that would be uh, to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a Psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Amen to that. All right, our uh, sermon today is Exodus 4. It's verses 24 through 31. This is entitled, A Bridegroom of Blood and a Divine Visitation. So starting Exodus 4 in the 24th verse, it's actually two separate paragraphs with two separate things going on. And so it's actually two sermons in one. But uh, starting in verse 24, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. In any relationship, there seems to be a dominant person and one who yields to the other. When I was young, my father was a realtor. He mentioned one time that there was always one person who was the ultimate decider of whether a house would be purchased by a couple or not. It was this one that the realtor would focus on. However, he said that it wasn't always easy to tell which it actually was. Sometimes the true leader was quieter than the other. And one might incorrectly assume that the other person was the one who was the target. When Paul and Barnabas were commissioned for their missionary work, they went out spreading the word. At one time, while they're in the city of Lystra, Paul healed a man crippled from birth. When the crowd saw it, they said that the gods had come down to them. In Acts 14, verse 12, it says, And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. They thought that Barnabas was the lead god and that Paul was his chief speaker. In today's verses, we're going to see Aaron speaking for Moses. But he is doing so to highlight Moses' ability to deliver the people of Israel from their bondage. Together, they will do great things in the sight of the people and eventually in the sight of Pharaoh. And Israel will be led out in a marvelous way. And like Paul and Barnabas, Moses and Aaron will have a time of disagreement as well. But in all, they will make a marvelous duo as they lead and instruct the people of God. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 77. It's the 20th verse. You led your people like a flock by the hand 
of Moses and Aaron. The flock of Israel will be led through some wondrous events in the chapters ahead. Together, Moses and Aaron will be a fitting team for the task. And at God's command, they will establish a religious system that has had an effect on the entire world. After a brief look at three unusual verses of Exodus chapter 4, these two great men will meet up and begin the work set before them. God has ordained each one of us with certain gifts and certain abilities. Sometimes they work best when united with those that have other abilities. And this is certainly true with Aaron and Moses. If you find a person that you can accomplish great things for God with, then solidify that relationship and go forth in his strength. We have examples such as Moses and Aaron to remind us that with God, all things are possible. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Now I've got three thoughts for you. The first today is a husband of blood and it's verses 24 through 26. And before I actually start those verses, I want to tell you that uh, these are very complicated verses. I have uh, read many, many, many scholars, as I do for each sermon, and none of them came to the conclusion that I came to, and only one of them partially did, Adam Clark. But other than that, everybody sides on another side of this particular issue, and I'll talk about that as we're going. But I want you to know that you need to research the Word of God. It's fine to listen to preachers. It's fine to listen to teachers. But you are ultimately uh, in charge of what you believe from the word. So I'm going to give you my take on this. And I do believe it's correct based on what we have seen. The flow of this story and the structure of the Bible in redemptive history shows me that this is probably the case. And I've had two people in advance of me doing these three verses actually email me and say, Charlie, what are these verses about? Actually three because Sergio did about a year and a half ago. And I told each one of them, I'm just, you know, I'm not there and I don't want to get out of sync on this. Uh, but one of them was about um, three or four months ago, and I finally got up to typing the sermon about um, uh, probably, what, eight weeks ago now. And I finished my typing, and I did something I normally don't do. I sent him in advance this particular portion of this sermon, and uh, he looked it over, and he says, I've never seen any comment like this one. He says, I do believe it's correct, and I believe that this has come out for the end times. And so uh, that's what he said. The other guy, Joshua, who attends here from time to time, the young man, he uh, asked about it. And I told him, we're only two weeks away now, Joshua. I ain't telling you, so you're going to have to wait. <laughs> and then uh, this past week, uh, even Mabel asked about it. And I said, we just need to wait until Sunday. So here we are at these verses, and they are very complicated. There's only three of them, but uh, I hope that you will enjoy what comes out of here. Uh, verse 24, and it came to pass on the way. Moses has received his commission and his instructions. The last specific directions to him and his compliance to them began in, began in verses 19 and 20, which said this. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. After that, he was instructed about what to say to Pharaoh once he got there, which comprised verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now remember that, that leads us into what we're going to be talking about. All of a sudden, after that, these strange set of three verses is introduced. 
It seems to make little sense, but when taken in connection with the two previous sets of verses, it becomes clearer. The last thing it noted physically is that he took the rod of God in his hand. He bears the symbol of the authority and power of God. Because of this, he must be a suitable representative of him and of his standards if he is to bear the responsibilities associated with those duties as his representative. Then, in his instructions of what he was to say to Pharaoh, there was a penalty noted for disobedience, the death of the firstborn. The implication is that for obedience to God, there is no consequence, but for disobedience, there is a resulting penalty, death. The account here is given to show that this standard is not only for God's enemies, and it's not only that they're subject to punishment, but so are God's people. Obedience is expected by all. Verse 24 continues, at the encampment. The Hebrew says ba malon. It basically means at the inn. The word malone is a resting place or an inn or something like that. However, where they are located, it would simply mean a stopping point for the night. Whether they set up a tent, whether they slept in a cave, or whether there was a standard caravan stopping point with a well and a palm tree, no matter what, it would have been rather rustic. Verse 24 continues, that the Lord met him. The Hebrew here is very specific. It says, Ve'yipgeshehu Yehovah, and met him Jehovah. What isn't specific is how Jehovah met him. Some see this as an anthropomorphic way of saying that Moses simply fell ill by the hand of the Lord. It's not an actual visitation. But the word pagash here implies to meet or to encounter someone. The Lord has already visibly appeared to quite a few people in the book of Genesis. He did it to Adam, to Abraham, Lot, Jacob, etc. And he will continue to do so at various points throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And so there's no reason to believe that this is not a physical appearance of the incarnate Lord. He has appeared and he has specific intent in this appearance. Verse 24 continues, and sought to kill him. The Hebrew is again clear in saying, and sought to kill him. But it isn't clear in who is intended to be put to death. Is it Moses or is it one of his sons? Not all, but most scholars side with it being Moses. He has been at the center of the narrative and he has the commission and he will continue to be the story's focus. But it doesn't make sense to assume that the Lord would kill the person who has been given the sign of assurance, the signs of the commission and the implement of authority for carrying out the task. Further, it doesn't fit the very pattern of the two previous sets of verses that we just looked at a moment ago. Obedience to Jehovah is expected or the firstborn son will die by the hand of Jehovah. Therefore, the logical conclusion is that his son, not Moses, is who is intended here. In Genesis 17, these words were spoken to Abraham. It says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you, sh you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And here we go. And the uncircumcised male child 
who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The child who is not circumcised was to be cut off from the people, not the father. Moses is returning to Egypt, and so the obedience, which fellowship with Israel entails, is required. How could a man lead the people without showing the same obedience to the law as they were expected to show? As the New Testament tells us concerning this precept, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God when speaking of a pastor, which is what Moses is going to be. He's going to be shepherding the people. The child is uncircumcised and therefore the situation must be remedied or the child will die. The only scholar that I know of that came to this conclusion was Adam Clark. Nobody else has come to this conclusion. At the same time, though, Moses will learn another lesson in obedience to the call of God upon his life. Verse 25, then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut the foreskin, cut off the foreskin of her son. Hearing the plight of her child who was to be killed, it is Zipporah who takes the sharp stone, probably a knife of flint, and cut off her son's foreskin. The word for sharp stone here is the Hebrew word tsor, and it signifies a hard stone. As flint has been used for thousands of years for this and many other purposes, it is certainly the most likely implement. With this immensely sharp and effective tool, she performed the neglected rite of circumcision on her son. No reason is given why he wasn't circumcised. And I got to tell you what, there are a thousand speculations out there. That isn't what really matters, though. It matters less whose fault it was or what the family was thinking. Rather, he simply wasn't circumcised according to the law of the Hebrews. But I will say this, the most possible speculation which bears support from the few words which are given is that Zipporah was somehow involved in this neglect. This is because she is the one who now assumes the responsibility. Perhaps she didn't want her son circumcised out of affection. I mean, I just don't want to do that. Or maybe she didn't want him identified with Moses' people. But now the error of the decision is handled by her. Verse 25 continues, and cast it at Moses' feet. The words in Hebrew are vataga le raglav. That's all it says. And touched to feet. The name Moses has been inserted by the translators because they think he is the object of the action. Not all translations do this, but many of them do. They are supposing that it's Moses, but that's only an assumption. Also, the form of the verb should be taken as touch. It's a cal form verb and not cast, which would be a hifil form of the verb. That's a Hebrew form of a verb there. It's in the cal. It means it should be to touch. It is a deliberate act of touching, not a careless act of tossing. Now, whose feet are touched with the foreskin is not identified. And there are only three possible choices of those who are present. And this is where Adam Clark and I start to diverge in our opinion about what's going on. It's either the child, who Adam Clark thinks it is, it's Moses, who everybody else thinks it is, or it is the Lord. Does it matter? Well, it matters to the Lord who gave us this word. It also matters enough that no specific name has been given. In other words, it is asking us to consider what is going on without specifically being told what is going on. The only one who has been explicitly mentioned and who will be implicitly mentioned again in the next verse is the Lord not Moses. In fact, in the first major section of this chapter, which went from verse 1 to verse 14, Moses was mentioned by name five times. In the next section, which was verse 18, a single verse, he was mentioned twice. In the next, 
In 19 through 23, he is mentioned four times. And in the last, which is verses 27 through 31, he is again mentioned four times. But in this one section of three verses, his name is not mentioned at all. Curious, yes, but it's a clue. It appears that his name has been intentionally left out for us to focus on someone else, the Lord. If this is so, then it means that Zipporah has circumcised her son and then taken the foreskin and touched the feet of the Lord. It is a demonstration of fidelity to the ancient covenant and a request for mercy. As Matthew Henry says of her act, when God discovers to us what is amiss in our lives, we must give all diligence to amend it speedily. But why did she touch it to his feet? It seems like an irreverent act to do so, doesn't it? But in the Bible, the feet are somewhat of an exempt portion of the body concerning what is clean and what is unclean. Having dirty feet does not necessarily mean defilement. When someone came into a house to eat, what did they do? It's all through the Bible. They washed their feet, implying that the feet were unclean before washing them. They have trod upon the unclean world, and yet they are not wholly unclean. The feet have been exempted. At the Last Supper, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. In response to Peter's rash words about the matter, Jesus said this, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, when he was speaking of Judas. When Jesus rose from the dead, according to the book of John, Mary went to hold him there in the garden, but he told her to not cling to him. You could see she was about to throw herself on him. But when the women met him on the road in the account in Matthew, they were allowed to cling to his feet. Even from the time prior to Moses, this concept of the exemption of the feet was known. When the Lord appeared to Abraham before destroying Sodom, Abraham, knowing it was the Lord, offered to wash his feet. This is found in Genesis 18. It said, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the front, from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, knowing it's the Lord. Adonai is the word. If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. These and other examples show us that what Zipporah did by touching the feet of the Lord with the foreskin of her son was not irreverent, but rather an understood petition for mercy from her. In Revelation 1, verse 15, Jesus' feet are noted as being as of fine brass, right? What does fine brass represent in the Bible? Judgment. Anytime you see brass, it is judgment. You go back to Exodus 3, or I'm sorry, Genesis 3, verse 15, and what does it say? That the coming seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And how does he do it? He does it with his feet, all right? The feet are exempt. It is judgment. And judgment is either going to be pronounced or she's petitioning for mercy from it. So you can see all of this symbolism in this act of her touching the foreskin to his feet. In such examples and others, we can see that Zipporah's actions were not disrespectful, but rather they were in accord with the custom concerning the feet. But why would she do this? The answer is found in the continuation of the verse, which says, and said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. Ki katan damim atali. In the Hebrew, the word blood is plural. Surely husband of bloods you are to me. 
The sign of circumcision was the sign and the seal of the covenant community. Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15, way back in Genesis 15, verse 6. And then came the sign of that faith many, many years later in Genesis chapter 17. Zipporah was acknowledging this faith through the circumcision of her son. The bloody ritual showed faith in what the ritual signified. Until then, he was not considered a true part of the covenant people because the sign was lacking. If that was because of her petitioning Moses for the sake of not hurting her son, oh, please don't circumcise my little baby, she is now showing that that petition has been removed. It is an acknowledgement that faith in the Lord's word evidenced in the circumcision is more important than anything else. The circumcision only points to the faith which required it. Without the faith, the circumcision would have been pointless. This is testified to her touching his feet in a petition for mercy. Verse 26, so he let him go. The words are ve'yirip mimenu. It means and relaxed from him. It is implying that the action he was going to take has been let go or canceled. He has ceased from his intent to carry out the execution of the sentence for covenant violation. The request for mercy has been made and now mercy has been granted. Verse 26 continues. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Katan damim lamulot. Husband of bloods, it's plural again, because of circumcisions. The word for circumcision here is used only this one time in the Bible, and it is in the plural form. Zipporah is making a pronouncement because of what occurred. The circumcision was accepted, and the Lord restrained from his act. Because of this, she is stating that through circumcision, one is accepted by him. But this cannot mean the act of removing the foreskin is what ties a person to him. If this were the case, then anyone who is circumcised in the foreskin is saved by a mere deed. And there are many cultures, even in Egypt at the time, who circumcised in the foreskin. And yet they are not a part of the covenant community. Rather, it is faith in the Lord and his word which brings them into covenant relationship. The circumcision is merely a sign of this. That is why Paul in the New Testament says this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not the letter who not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. Paul speaks of circumcision of the heart regardless of the state of the flesh. And this concept of circumcision of the heart actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Both in Deuteronomy and in the book of Jeremiah it shows that circumcision of the flesh is useless without having the heart circumcised to the things of God. Paul continues to explain the right all the way through his epistles, but a summary of his words are found in Galatians chapter 5. He says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Zipporah exercised faith and her deed reflected the faith. What this asks us to consider then is what this means in her life. Moses had been called to go to Egypt to free the Hebrews. It appears that she must have felt that his task somehow left her out of the covenant promises, and so she determined to go along with him. Why would we suppose this? Well, there are a few reasons. First, in the next verse, Aaron is going to come out and meet Moses at Horeb. Moses had to have turned around after this account here and gone back to Horeb. 
Secondly, Zipporah and the sons are not mentioned again until Exodus chapter 18. When they are mentioned, it'll say this, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. It is apparent from this that Zipporah now understood that the redemption of Israel from Egypt meant that she was also included in the Lord's provision, regardless of whether she was actually there with Israel or not. The receiving of the law at Sinai comes after her reunion with Moses, not before. She will be there when the sign of promise which was given to Moses at the burning bush comes to pass. Together they will worship at the mountain of God. So the question is, why is this account, which has been termed obscure, unusual, and so on by scholars, why is it even included? It seems like an almost unnecessary insert between the call of Moses and the actual work which he has been called to. Even if it appears that he was heading out in compliance to the call, it seems perplexing that this detail is included. Couldn't the Lord have just said from the bush, hey Moses, before you leave, your sons need to be circumcised. Wouldn't that have been a sufficient way of avoiding what's happening here? If so, and it surely is, then there must be a reason why the Lord allowed it to come to this point. There must be a reason why the specific details are given. And if there is, then the reason must both teach a lesson and also picture something else later in redemptive history. I believe that these three verses are intended to show us that even though the church has been raptured out of the world during the tribulation, there will still be hope for those who come to Christ. We saw at the beginning of chapter 3 that the flock was taken to the west of Horeb. That was a picture of the rapture. It was perfectly clear. It's evident from the words what was going on. However, Zipporah and the children remained. As Zipporah is a picture of those in the church, and we talked about that during the sermon, and the children of Moses remained uncircumcised, then they picture those in the church who missed the rapture. They were never circumcised in their hearts. In other words, the child is a picture of those nominal Christians or other people of the world who never believed what they heard. Those in this state are destined to death, just like all people on the earth during the tribulation period. But there is mercy even for those during this time, if they call out to Christ. It was thought that Zipporah had to go along with Moses and join with Israel and to participate in what lay in ahead. But this account taught them that it isn't so. Rather, they needed faith in the Lord to be right with the Lord. They needed circumcision, not specifically circumcision of the flesh, but a right standing with God. And this is why the term husband of bloods because of circumcisions was used. The words bloods and circumcisions are plural because there is circumcision of the flesh and there is circumcision of the heart. Christ is the redeemer of Israel and he is the redeemer of those of the church as well. Even those left at the rapture, Christ is the Lord and they just needed to get that straight. No matter where you are from or who you are and regardless of anything you have done, no matter how wild, you can always make a new start when you circumcise your heart and you will be adopted as God's precious child. And a bridegroom of blood to you he will be when you place your faith in the Lord. He will look upon your heart, and there he will see that you have believed in him and his superior word. Such is the nature of God's saving grace, 
and such is the wonder of his infinite mercy. Instead of his back, you will look upon his face, and in his eyes for you, eternal love you will see. Our second thought, a meeting at the mountain of the God, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, and the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Instead of Moses traveling to Egypt with his family, and instead of him traveling alone to Egypt, the Lord now provides the proper format for those on a great mission to follow by initiating the effort. He directs Aaron to go to Moses. As we noted a few sermons ago, when the Lord commissions someone for a task, the norm is that he will have two go together. Rather than Moses going alone to Egypt and finding Aaron, Aaron is directed to go out to the wilderness to meet Moses. From there, the two will set out on the great mission of deliverance. Moses has been freed from the burden of having a wife and children to deal with, and he has been given the additional freedom of a partner to help him through these difficult times ahead. Verse 27 continues, So we went and met him at the mountain of God. In obedience to the word of the Lord, Aaron went into the wilderness. Now whether they had met up before or, and Aaron knew this location or not, isn't stated. In other words, Aaron may have gone to visit him over the past 40 years, but we don't know. All we have to go on is that it is Aaron who goes to Moses, and it is to the mountain of the God. Again, as when the mountain was mentioned before, there is a definite article in front of it. It is Har Ha Elohim, the mountain of the God. There is particular attention being drawn to the significance of this mountain, which is lost in every single translation that I looked at. Verse 27 continues, and kissed him. Finally, the verse ends with these words. Kisses are so rarely mentioned in the Bible that I always try to highlight them. Out of the jillions and jillions of kisses in human history, only about 37 are noted in the Old Testament and about 15 in the New. In the book of Exodus, there will be only two kisses. There is this one here between Moses and Aaron before the Exodus, and there would be one between Moses and Jethro after the Exodus. They are both between men. They are both signs of a bond of affection between family members, and they are both at times of reunions in greeting. One is to a Hebrew. The other is to a Gentile. There are contrasts between them, but there is also the confirmation of the bond in Christ regardless of national origin or location. There is harmony between peoples who belong to the Lord. It is a picture of the saved of the tribulation period, both Jew and Gentile. To this point, Aaron has only been mentioned once, and all we know of Aaron is that he speaks well. The Lord has selected him as Moses' mouthpiece before Pharaoh. Now he has been selected to journey to Moses and to begin his great task, one he as yet knows nothing about. But that is about to change. Verse 28. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. What is obvious is that Aaron knew that Moses had been selected for a purpose. He was directed to go to Moses on the mountain of the God and meet with him there. Now that he is there, Moses merely had to tell him of the words of the Lord and of the signs that he was commanded to do. And it doesn't say that Moses showed him the signs, but that he told him of them. There would be no need to record that he did the signs for Aaron in order to prove his words. It was Aaron who was first directed to by the Lord to go to Moses. And because he was, he wouldn't need to be swayed by the signs. This doesn't mean, and this is just Charlie Garrett liking to think these things through, it doesn't mean that Moses didn't do the signs for him. I could just imagine Moses walking along the road back to Egypt and saying, hey, look at this. Hey, look, you know, just making his hand turn leprous. And But the Bible doesn't say it. That's just me thinking things through. 
it is unnecessary for the Bible to show that Aaron needed convincing, because he didn't. The same, however, is not true with the leaders of Israel, as will be seen in the verses ahead. On the mountain of God his people gather there, and rejoice in the reunion with those long departed. A kiss of joy for the cheek and arms raised in the air, a hallelujah for a shout as the reunion is started. And in, the presence, in, his, in his presence, brothers will forever rejoice, knowing that God brought them to his sacred mountain through believing his word and making the choice to drink from the waters of his overflowing fountain. Yes, what great things our God has done for us. It is a gift to any and all who will but receive Jesus. Our third thought is so the people believed, verses 29 through 31. Now, before I get into this particular thought here, I want you to remember that the signs each pictured Christ. If you missed that sermon, you won't know this, but every sign perfectly pictured the work of Christ. These people picture the Jews who did not believe in Christ for the past 2,000 years. They've entered into the tribulation period. They're about to be delivered. Everything is pointing to the reconciliation of God through the work of Christ. Okay, just remember that. That's something that has been seen in all of those previous Jacob and Joseph sermons, and we're seeing it once again now. Verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Nothing more is recorded of the time of Moses' reunion, departing, travel, or arrival with Aaron. There are no recorded goodbye meals at the tent of Jethro, nor are there any stops recorded along the journey, as in the previous verses. Every word which is given has been carefully selected for a purpose. Nothing superfluous is added, and nothing needed is lacking. Redemptive history has an amazingly detailed and precise record for humanity to read and to consider. Without any other words of record, we find Moses and Aaron in Egypt, and together they have gone to gather Israel's elders. The implication is that there is a basic structure within the Israelite nation that already existed prior to the arrival of Moses. The bond of brotherhood between this people has remained united in a unique and in an unbroken way for over 3,500 years. And even when living within the larger confines of greater societies, they have remained distinct from those societies and they have their own internal organizational structures. It's always been this way with the Jewish people. The leaders of this set of organizations have been called for a very special meeting, a destiny-changing meeting, a meeting with their new leader, and a reunion of fellowship with the Lord who established them and called them as a people. Verse 30, And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. As the spokesman for Moses, Aaron is the one who gave the presentation of the words to the sons of Israel. He would have already been known among the people, and so rather than seeing a defect in Moses due to his speech, they would see the strength in Moses because of his brother's support of him. This account doesn't mean that Moses didn't speak, though, but that Aaron did. They may have asked Moses for words as well, but the words of the commission are what are presented by Aaron. The fact that Moses may have actually answered some of their questions later is in accord with the directions that Paul gives for the church in the New Testament. Here's what he says. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. So it's possible that Moses spoke, but it is Aaron who gives the words of the commission. What matters is what is said. Aaron passed on the words of the confirmation concerning Moses' election by God to be the leader of the sons of Israel. Verse 30 continues. Then he did the signs in the sight of all the people. This seems to imply that Aaron not only spoke on behalf of Moses, but that he also performed the signs. 
Others disagree, and they insert Moses here as the Bible's unnamed sign giver. Either is possible because later in Exodus, Aaron will perform signs in front of Pharaoh as well as Moses performing signs in front of Pharaoh. Me, personally, I would think that Moses is the one who performed them. What matters is not what is unstated, though, but what is stated. The words were spoken, the signs were given, and a result occurred, which is verse 31. So the people believed. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Aaron spoke the word of God. The word was backed up with the power of God as testified to in the signs, each of which points to Christ, and the people believed the word they had been given. Again, as I have noted in the past, we have no less of a testimony than the people of Israel did. No less. We have the word and the sign. They are combined into one condensed whole, which we now know as the Holy Bible. It is both a word to the people and it is a sign to the people. That's all there is to it. The unquenchable power of God is displayed in its pages and it is displayed in the lives of the people it has changed. This same process is seen even here as the words of verse 31 and the fourth chapter of Exodus come to a close. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. Imagine this day is really coming in human history for us. It happened once and it will happen again when they recognize who the Lord Jesus is. We ought to be praying for that moment every day of our life. It's the very last prayer that I say every night. Open the eyes of Israel. Those gathered here, they've heard the good news and the word of the Lord. The miracles confirmed that, that same good news to the people and the people believed. The many years of affliction had not been overlooked by the Lord. Rather, the time of the Lord's divine visitation showed that he had never forgotten them. They now realized that they had never left his mind. He was ever attentive to their burdened state. And the word here for visited, it's a word that we talked about in the book of Ruth as well. It's pakad. It's a word which has no comparable single word in the English, and so rather it must be described. One scholar, a guy named Spicer, says that there is probably no other Hebrew verb that has caused translators as much trouble as pakad. In the way it is used here, it almost always has the sense, which is now largely obsolete, of making a visitation, and it points to an action that produces a great change in the position of a subordinate, either for good or for ill. And that's what we're seeing. The Lord comes and makes a visit, a pakad, and the people have a change in them. So that's what we're seeing here. It indicates overseeing or looking into a matter and then attending to it. In other words, the Lord divinely looked into the affairs of Israel and attended to their misery, the misery that they had faced, which had gone on for so very long. In his visiting, he would grant them freedom from their captivity once again. And what a comforting thought that is for us to end on. The people of Israel suffered under the weight of bondage. And much of that was due to a self-inflicted wound of having turned from the Lord and towards idols and false gods. And yet because they bore his name, he never left them and he never forsook them. He was ready to attend to them as soon as they called out to him. When they did, the deliverer showed up at their doorsteps with the good news that they would now be attended to. If this is true for, true for them, and it certainly is, then it is true for us as well. God allows us to make our own bad mistakes and even to suffer the consequences of them. But for those who are his, he will never, never forsake them. Instead, he simply waits for their heart to return to him. And for those who are faithful to him and who still suffer, there is always a reason for the trials. 
He is molding us and he's shaping us for his reasons. We are not left unattended to even in our times of trial. He is always there and his ear is always listening to the sound of our heartfelt cries. So if you've never experienced the perfect peace and the contentment which comes from relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, I hope you'll give me just another minute to share this wonderful news with you, this good news. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from the power and the grasp of the devil. And that was affected all the way back at the very beginning of man on earth. God created man. He placed him in the Garden of Eden and the devil came and tempted the man and man violated God's commandment. Don't do one thing, just one thing. It was one command. It was in the negative. Just don't do this one thing. And he did it. And at that moment, sin entered into the stream of humanity and all men are in Adam. We all have Adam's sin. Doesn't matter. People say, I've never sinned. Well, that doesn't make any difference. You are in sin. And of course, you've sinned anyway. But because you have that sin in your life, you are separated from God the Father. There is no fellowship. There is no restoration. This thing about all paths lead to God is nonsense. It's not very well thought through at all. The fact is that nobody's going to meet with God. Nobody. Unless there is a way that God comes to us. And he did that by sending his son into the stream of humanity. Born without Adam's sin. Lived the life perfectly that you and I cannot live. And then he gave that beautiful, perfect, wonderful life up on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. His blood was shed. His life was taken so that we could have peace with God. And our sin, if we believe in this, if we have hope in it, our sin is nailed to that cross. And to prove that it's true, he came out of the grave showing that he had no sin of his own. So the marvel of Jesus Christ is that our sin is gone. It is washed away in his cross and we are now in Christ forever, forever to live in his presence. It is the most marvelous, wonderful thing that God has done for us. And I would ask today that you would simply accept the gift of God, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, turn to him and let him fill you with his spirit and fill you with his superior word until the day he comes for you too at that wonderful moment when the trumpet goes off, when it blows for us and we depart to be with him. Our closing verse today is from Psalm 105. It's verses 26 and 27. It says there, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. Next week is uh, Exodus 5. It's verses 1 through 9. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel. That'll be our 14th Genesis sermon. I'll tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Okay. Our poem today is called a bridegroom of blood, and a divine visitation. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment where they did stay, that the Lord met him that day and sought him to slay. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son with alacrity and cast it at Moses' feet as if to atone and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go, having made the decision. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron in a divine nod, Go into the wilderness, Moses, to meet. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him in a reunion so sweet. So Moses told Aaron all the words, everything, so that he would understand of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he did command. Then Moses and Aaron went to tell and gathered together all 
the elders of the children of Israel, together the assembly, they did call. And Aaron told all the words which the Lord to Moses had spoken. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. They were given this token. So the, the people believed, and surely their hearts were relieved. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped for a spell. God never forgets his covenant nor his people. Though they may suffer, they are always on his mind. Whether in a dark prison or under a church steeple, let us praise him for his tender mercy so kind. For his promises are greater than any trial. His love is endless and his attentive care never ends. After the troubles and woes come the times we smile as he gathers together his children, his friends. What an honor to be known as God's friend. And it came because of the gift of love, our Lord Jesus. We shall hail the Lamb for years without end, for he has done such marvelous things for us. Yes, praise you, O God, for the promises of your precious word. We exalt you and praise you through Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful word. Thank you. I pray that this analysis today was correct. I, I, you know me. I don't want to be off by one word with your word but I just am so thankful for the things that are in it. And I am certain that it is that you are showing us that there is hope for the people in the tribulation period, those who missed the boat, who are stuck on the wrong shore, that they have hope and they have the ability to call out to you if they will simply circumcise their heart. They come to you in evidence of that calling on you, repenting, maybe giving up their life and not taking the mark of the beast. If that's the price, it's a small one to pay for eternity eternity's heavenly rewards. Lord, thank you for all of the good, kind blessings that you've given us. Thank you that Jim and Linda are back safely. We do pray for Kelly Carlin. We pray that uh, her mom would be okay and that you would uh, get her back on her feet and uh, not be so stubborn about carrying her oxygen with her. And we pray for safe travels for Dad and Ann, that they'll come back safely. And uh, for each person that uh, has something on their heart today that may be burdening them or a need or something that uh, they're facing, we would pray that uh, you would uh, just attend to that, make a divine visitation and look into it and bring about a favorable response. And Lord, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you. We do so in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul gives us the instruction for the Lord's Supper. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes these words to us. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And the Lord would have given a blessing over this bread as he broke it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamutzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. He brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For... As often as you drink, eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. in the blood of the Lord Jesus. In the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. In the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing us here today. Help us get home safely and have a good week ahead, and we look forward to great things in anticipation of your open hand of grace in the week ahead. And uh, Please bring us safely again here next week, if it is your will to do so. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.